As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah in chapter 36. This is new territory for us here. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 36. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, it is our desire that we would trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. Lord, would you make our paths straight? Would you write on the tablet of our hearts your love and your faithfulness? Would you guide us now as we come before your word? Help us to learn, help us to grow, and help us to trust you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be here in the book of Isaiah in chapter 36. I want to take here this entire chapter and maybe even snip the beginning of the next chapter. Um, that's a bit, but I know we can handle it here. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a historical account. It's a story here. So we'll be able to, to follow this, I think. Uh, but this is the book of Isaiah in chapter 36, beginning in verse... One. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord has said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you? 
and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He won't be able to deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, Surely the Lord will deliver us. The city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. And then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. Each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands? But they were silent. And they answered him not a word. For the king's command was, don't answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, it was a whole chapter. I know there is a lot to digest here. Before we unpack this, I first want to address what we are doing here. We have spent almost a year in the book of Hebrews, and now suddenly we are plopped right in the middle of Isaiah. Why? Uh, Part of this is just because we've spent a good amount of time in the New Testament, so we will be heading soon to a particular part of the Old Testament. I won't name it. I'll leave it as a teaser. You'll have to see where we land when we get there. But before we land in this part of the Old Testament, I want to take a little bit of time here to hear the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. Because during the season of Advent which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be looking at the servant songs of Isaiah, what's called the servant songs in Isaiah's book. So for the few weeks before Advent and Christmas, what we're in now, I want to set the stage for that context. Now, having said that, yes, you heard me just mention Advent and Christmas. And yes, I know we just barely left October. Uh, That sounds early. I just saw this week a little uh, drawing, I guess, uh, circulating on Facebook, a little cartoon of three little cars that are driving side by side in their lanes. So there's a witch who's driving in the October lane and a turkey who's driving their car in the November lane and Santa who's driving his car in the December lane and he's swerving across, cutting off the other two. Uh, And the the caption is, stay in your lane. (laughs) 
Uh, we know that this was especially true this Halloween when we got snow. Um, so I, I don't want to do that here. We're not trying to drag Christmas into October. We love Christmas, but it has its place and it has its season. If you look at a church calendar, not just a calendar that you get from the store, but a, a church calendar, uh, the church broadly has divided up the year uh, according to holidays or according to the holy days in seasons. So in the church calendar, you will see seasons like the season of Pentecost, the season of Lent, uh, the season of Epiphany, if you know what that is. And in December, we have the season of Advent. It's anticipation of Christmas, and there is some wisdom in anticipating that, in preparing our hearts for the birth of Jesus. But now, we are not in Advent. In November, if you look at a church calendar, we're in the season which is called ordinary time. We're now in the season of ordinary time. And I love that. Ordinary time actually takes up most of the year. And there is wisdom in focusing on that, too. Because most of the Christian life is not big events. Most of the Christian life is not transcendent, dramatic moments. Most of the Christian life is not mountain-type, mountaintop experiences or even valley experiences. Most of the Christian life is ordinary time. It's about following Jesus in the ordinary time. It's about the work of God in the ordinary time. So we want to make good of this in November, make good of our ordinary time. So we're going to, to soak in a part of Scripture that you may be less familiar with. So if you were to take your Bible and your lap and set it upright, you know, holding the sides, and just let it fall open as it, as it will, well, now it may fall open to Hebrews. You've got probably a nice crease there, but which delights my soul. But if you just let it fall open, there's at least a, a, a decent chance that it will fall open to the book of Isaiah. Here it is right near the middle uh, of the Bible here in the Old Testament, and it's big. It's a big book. It's got 66 chapters. So if you're just looking at the number of chapters, it's the second largest book in the Bible, second only to, little trivia, Psalms, who has 150. And because of the size of this book, many people are intimidated by the book of Isaiah. And so we sometimes skip it, or avoid it, or maybe we start in it and then get overwhelmed, so skip into the New Testament where we're more familiar with things. And as a result, we don't often know much about Isaiah or his time. If we know anything about Isaiah, it's probably chapter 6, where we hear that very famous scene where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. 
And above him were angels with six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they fly. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, takes a coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's mouth and appoints him, really in this way, as a prophet of God. This is to atone for Isaiah's sin. This scene in in chapter 6 of Isaiah is beautiful, it's stunning, it's powerful, it's transcendent. It is also different than what we see even in the rest of the book. So let me try, if I can, let me try just uh, today to help us get a better grip on the whole book of Isaiah. You ready? 66 chapters. Here we go. It won't be painful. In general... We can divide the book of Isaiah into two halves. It's basically like a two-act play. The first act is the first 35 chapters, chapters 1 through 35. The second act in Isaiah is the last section, chapters 40 through 66. And in these two acts, there's a little bit of crossover in the themes of both, but generally they can be divided like this. Act one is about groaning, and act two is about glory. Groaning and glory. Or we could put it this way, act one is about the heavy justice of God. And act two is about the light hope of God. Or, last way I'll put it, if you're an image person, Act 1 is the thunderclouds, Act 2 is the rainbow. So if you were to start at the beginning of the book of Isaiah and start reading but quit and give up your reading before you reach Act 2, you're going to get a skewed view of God. God is going to sound like one who is harsh, and angry, pretty upset most of the time. And likewise, if you only read sections of the end, you'll also get a skewed view of God, a God who, who, is, who is all peace and all comfort. So we want to keep all of this together. If we don't, we're chopping it up, and it would be sort of like watching just a part of the movie Titanic. You know, if you just watch the beginning of Titanic, you might think it's about a nice boat ride which would totally mess up the story and we wouldn't get what Titanic is about. So we need to keep it all together. Where we are now in the section we have just read is neither Act 1 nor Act 2. If you were listening carefully to the, to the chapter division, you may have noticed there's a small gap between the chapter numbers I noticed. Chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 or the gap between the two, what some uh, authors call the historical interlude, if you want to be fancy, the historical interlude of Isaiah, or I'll call it the intermission, the section between the acts. And in this intermission, this is not just, oh, there's a pause, so I could get popcorn, and and I need to run to the bathroom, sort of like the commercial breaks uh, between what's going on in this interlude is important context of the things that are happening on either side. It's in the space between the groaning and the glory, the space between the justice and the hope, the space between the thunder and the rainbows. Here in chapter 36, the section we just read, the year is 701 
B.C. 701 B.C., 700 years before Jesus, and by this time, the kingdom of Israel, the people of God, had long been split into two kingdoms. There was the north kingdom of Israel, which was the largest by far. It had 10 of the tribes. And then there was the south kingdom of Judah, which was small, just a remnant, a torn off piece, which just had one tribe of Judah. The king of Judah that we meet here is Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah was a teenager, in the years before he was a king, I guess we don't get much about his life. I don't, what do you do as a, as a teenage Israelite? Do you still have curfew or cow tipping? I don't know what the teenage things are. But years before he was king, when he was a teenager, he watched as the northern kingdom of Israel fell into the hands of Assyria. The empire of Assyria had become a dominant world power, and they had captured Israel's capital city of Samaria. They'd conquered all of Israel's major cities. They'd exiled all of the people of Israel out of their homeland. You can read all of this. I won't read it, but if you're interested in 2 Kings chapter 17 is the full account. This fall of Israel, of the bulk of the people of God, is actually an act of God. God brought them to fall. It's an act of judgment for the sin of the people because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, because of their stubbornness, that God had long warned them, but they did not listen. Hezekiah then watched most of the people of Israel fall. And now... He's this one king left, the king of Judah, the one tribe that's left in the capital city of Jerusalem with armies of Syria all around him. The neighboring cities have now all been taken. And here comes an army headed by this high uh, official of Assyria, the Rabshakeh, and he has a message from the Assyrian king. And he wants to announce that message here in Jerusalem as the people sit on the wall and watch Here's the center of his message, verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Israel, here it is. On what do you rest this trust of yours? On what do you rest this trust of yours? They've come in to take over the city. And this question gets right to the heart of it. He's asking them, can you, will you trust in your God? In some ways, this is the big question of Isaiah. It's even one of the biggest questions of life. What do you rest your trust on? Is it a walled city like Jerusalem? Is that what you rest your trust on? Do you rest your trust on your past experiences? Perhaps your family or your heritage? Maybe your education or your bank account? Do you rest your trust in yourself? Yourself or perhaps your God? And when we ask, on what do you rest this trust of yours? then what happens when that trust is put to the test? 
And that's what the Rabshakeh, this high official, is doing. He's going to press on them and see if their trust is going to hold up. He says here, if your trust is just mere words, if you're all talk, that's not actually any real power or strategy, and Assyria will take you. If your trust is really in Egypt, if this other nation is your backup, is going to come in as your rescuer, he says, we've already beaten them. They're a broken reed. They can't even stand up on their own, much less hold up you. And then he says, "If if you trust in the Lord, you know we've already beaten all the gods of the other nations, right? The gods of Hamath, Arpad, Sepharvaim. We've even beaten Samaria and Israel. And isn't the Lord their God too? And we beat them. In fact, the Lord is the one who sent us to destroy you. Is all of this your trust? What is your trust? And then, are you willing to bet on it? He says, let's, uh, let's make a wager. We'll give you 2,000 horses. No catch. Just 2,000 horses. And I bet you don't even have enough people to put riders on those horses to fight. I bet you can't even find enough people to stand up against us. So listen, Jerusalem, let's be reasonable here. Why don't you just wave your white flag and surrender? Why not make peace with us and come out? We will exile you into Assyria, but at least you'll have food, at least you'll have drink, at least you'll have a place to live, and at least you won't die. Or are you willing to take the risk? Are you going to stick with your king who tells you that the Lord will deliver you? On what do you really rest this trust of yours? I wonder what it was like for the people along the wall to hear that. I wonder if there was a flicker in some of their minds, if some of them thought, maybe he's right. I mean, there's a lot riding on just a little bit of trust here. What if he is right? You'll notice here in this interaction as this enemy is coming against Jerusalem, in the interaction, not a single sword comes out of its sheath. There are no battering rams here. There's no bloodshed. There are no battle cries. This is all talk, a conversation. The sharpness here is really in the words. He asks a sharp question. What do you trust in? Is your God really for you? Is your God really able to save you? One author calls this interaction psychological warfare. We see here psychological warfare. The battle here is really just trying to get into our heads, trying to get under our skin. Because a lot of what the Rabshakeh says to the people here makes sense. A lot of it is even true. I mean, the reality is Egypt is broken. They will not be a help to the people of Israel. The reality is the surrounding nations, even their own cities, have really been taken. The reality is they don't have enough people to put on those horses, even if they were given them. The risk here here is very real, and I'm sure they felt it. 
felt that risk. What then are they to do? Uh, One author, a commentary on this, Barry Webb, writes this. This speech, the one here given by the Rabshakeh, this speech is so persuasive precisely because it contains so much that is true. But its basic premise is false, namely that the Lord had forsaken Judah and therefore that trust in him is futile. It is always Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us and to use logic woven from half-truths to convince us of that. This speech is so subtly devilish in character that it might have even been written by Satan himself. The truth is that the Lord had brought Judah to the end of her own resources so that she might learn again what it means to trust him utterly. The Lord had not abandoned her and would not abandon her. The real battle, he's reminding us here, is not really a battle of resources. The real battle is a battle of trust. And the Lord is working to build trust in his people toward him, while the enemy, Satan, is working to undermine, to undercut that trust. Scripture calls Satan uh, the deceiver, the liar, the father of lies. And this is one of his chief weapons, not to smack us in the face with really obvious, bold-faced lies, but to undermine trust with half-truths, to sugarcoat things with just enough truth that it would make us bite and put a dent in our trust in God, to put a small tear in our trust in God. This has been Satan's work from the very beginning. If you think all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis, the Lord had given Adam and Eve all of creation, all of it, to enjoy and to reign and rule over. And in the middle of this creation, he set one tree in the middle of the garden, and he said, don't eat of it. He did this so that they would have an expression of obedience toward the Lord, to trust in the Lord and following what he said. But the serpent, Satan, in his craftiness said, did God actually say that? Did the Lord really say you can't eat from any tree? Just throwing enough in there, trying to wrap it in a half-truth, just subtly try to undermine their trust in their God. Satan doesn't need to cut all the way to the heart in one swipe. All he needs is just enough to get under the skin. The weeds of mistrust start with seeds that are just barely underneath the surface of the ground. The Rabshakeh here toward the people of God is scattering a lot of seed, a lot of different types of seed even, to try to undermine their trust in the King and in the Lord. So let's look here very briefly at the types of seeds that he scatters here. Perhaps some of these will sound familiar 
to you, there may be even some of these seeds that are a particular threat to your own life now and situations now. So listen carefully. You'll notice here he sows seeds of dread. Seeds of dread or fear. The question for this one is, what if? What if? What if we don't surrender? What will happen to us? Ooh, what will happen to our kids? I mean, even if we survive this, we'll be trapped to eat our own filth until we die. What if? Seeds of dread. He also sows seeds of division. Seeds of division. The question here is, who is he? In other words, who is our king? I mean, our little king Hezekiah, weak, small nation. Who is our king that we should listen to him? Remember the Rav Shake wants to speak in the local language of the people, not just in the high-level language so only they can understand them. He wants to get in the minds of all of the people to start to drive wedges in between the people and wedges between the people and their leaders to really ask, who is he? Seeds of division. Third, seeds of Deal-making. Deal-making. Or the question, why not? Why not? Why not compromise? Why shouldn't we just try to find some common ground? Why not just go ahead and make peace with this nation who has opposed the Lord? At least at the end of it, we'll be alive. We might be taken away from God's promised land, but he's going to give us vines and a fig tree and our own cisterns to drink out of. That doesn't sound so bad, so why not? Seeds of deal-making. And over all of this, the fourth, and I think the most prominent one, I think this is maybe the father of all of the questions he sows, seeds of doubt. Seeds of doubt. The core question there is, how? How? How can all of this end well? How on earth are we going to survive? How are we supposed to respond to this? How are we going to get ourselves out of this mess? How can we really trust the Lord in this? How? And there are seeds of doubt. And each of those seeds, if they're allowed to continue, will blossom into weeds of mistrust. So beware of those. But also take comfort and remember that we're in a larger story here. Remember Act 1 and Act 2. This whole story is not over, and God is greater than even our own hearts. God is still at work Here, remember also that we're not even just in the larger story. We're still in the intermission. So next, we would follow the scene as it continues. Today, I want to leave this scene just as it is, where we stopped. With the people sitting on the wall, silent and watching, an army in front of them. With the king Hezekiah with his robes torn as he's heading into the house of the Lord. And the question of trust is still just hanging in the air. We do not yet see the Lord show up. 
Although if you have a hunch that the Lord might show himself trustworthy, that hunch will be right. (laughs) But I want us to pause here. We need to learn to live here because this is real life for us. I mean, none of us sits on the wall of Jerusalem with some Assyrian official threatening for us to have to eat our own bathroom products eventually. But there are lots of situations, even now, where we are subtly being called, being beckoned to give up ourselves to follow anything other than Jesus. There are lots of situations that are trying to sow in us dread and division and deal-making and doubt. And all of this, the heat of it, will slowly melt away our trust in the Lord. We need to remember that our God is one who can be trusted. Our God is one who should be trusted. We need regular reminding of that. We need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. The author of the Psalms, David, here in this section, writes this in Psalm 40, verse 1. He says, I waited, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. I want to be that. I want us to be that, that we wouldn't follow after any lie, but that we would be a people, men and women, who make the Lord our trust. If that's going to happen, it must be a supernatural work of God. We pray that he would work that in us, that he would cause us to trust him. So we praise him when he does that. We also want to put all our energy into pursuing this, to actively trust the Lord daily, especially to practice trust here in the ordinary time. This is the best place to practice trust. We practice it now in the ordinary time so that we will not be sunk on the day the miry bog comes, on the day when the rabshake comes. We practice it now in the ordinary time if you struggle to trust. If you struggle to trust the Lord with your kids, keep reminding yourself, Lord, I trust you in the ordinary times as you tuck your kids in at the end of the day. If you struggle to trust God with your health, keep telling yourself, Lord, I trust you in this in the ordinary times as you sit down to a meal. If you struggle to trust the Lord with your job, keep reminding yourself, Lord, I trust you in the ordinary times as you make coffee that morning or boot up your computer. And if you struggle to trust the Lord with your future, 
with the long term of what the Lord is doing in your life, if you struggle to trust the Lord with your future, keep reminding yourself, Lord, I trust you in the ordinary times of whatever comes in the next hour as you drive home and have just a normal day. As we do this, the Lord is building the muscle of trust in us, strengthening our hearts and minds so that we will return to him again and again because he feels like home. So then when the day when the pressing question really comes, when everything is on the line, on what do you rest this trust of yours, it will feel very natural and real to us to answer My trust is really in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that we are not strong enough for these things on our own. This is always true. Lord, we need you to work this in us. We want this. Would you help us to fight off the have-truths of the enemy? Lord, work us in us the truth that you are God and help us, whatever comes, to trust you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.